Um, Ken came and preached for me at Docks in Corvallis uh, earlier this year. And uh, I was out of town, and uh, when I came back and asked people how it went on Sunday, everybody kind of said the same kind of thing and see if this resonates with you. They go, it was crazy. Ken gets up there, and he just talks for like an hour. <laughs> and I don't really know exactly what he was talking about, but it was awesome. So <laughs> does that sound about right? <laughs> so <laughs> love that guy. He's a good brother, and, uh, and we, we are excited about the... A partnership that we have with you and several other churches on the West Coast, um, partnering together to, to plant churches. And uh, so this is really cool, cool to be here as family. So um, I'm going to go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you can go there with me. And I want to dive into a passage that's been uh, on my mind a lot recently. Matthew 7 is uh, the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, where he's essentially laying out the paradigm for discipleship. He's describing for his, uh, his first followers the life that he uh, is calling them to, but even more specifically, the kind of community that he's calling his disciples uh, to form. And so uh, we're just going to read a short passage, a familiar passage, and then... Uh, and just try to ask a few questions and hear what God might say to us through his word this morning. So, Matthew chapter 7, we'll read the first six verses. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet. And turn and tear you to pieces. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've made. We're thankful for the chance to be gathered here as your family, as your body. And I'm thankful for each of my brothers and sisters that are here today in the name of Jesus. And most of all, God, we are thankful that you are here with us. And so we would pray, as we open up your word, would you open up our hearts? Would you reveal your will, your mind, your vision to us? And would you allow us to hear it, to receive it, to believe it? and ultimately to obey it for your glory. And so we invite you to move deeply among us by your Holy Spirit and continue the good work you've begun in us of forming the image of your Son in us that the world might see who you really are. So thank you for this moment in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, most likely a familiar passage to most of us who uh, belong to Christ's church, 
But it's also a passage that is pretty familiar even to those who aren't followers of Jesus. And in fact, I would even say that verse 1, do not judge, is one of the few verses in the Bible that's probably quoted to Christians more than it's quoted by Christians, right? So actually a guy in Corvallis recently, I was at a coffee shop and got into a conversation with a dude, and he told me that he reads the pot smoker's Bible. Did you know there's a pot smoker's Bible? It's got, he goes, it's got two verses, Genesis 129, which says, God gave us every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, and Matthew 7.1, do not judge. So that's the pot smoker's Bible. We don't read that Bible, but uh, it's out there. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passage, of, a verse especially, that our culture is pretty familiar with. So I, I want to take a few minutes this morning, just ask a few questions, and, and primarily this. What does this passage teach us about the kind of community Jesus is calling his disciples to form? What does this passage teach us about the kind of community Jesus is calling his disciples to form? So first, really clearly, there's an imperative, a command. Jesus lays it out. He says, do not judge. So at the top of the list, when Jesus envisions what his his followers would look like sharing life together, he says, I want you to be a community where you do not judge judge. Now, what does that mean? What does the word judge mean? Well, anytime we ask that question in terms of scripture, we're looking at a full range, a a lexical range of all the different ways that a word like judge is used. And so if you go through scripture on one end of the lexical spectrum, the word judge is used in the Bible simply to make an evaluation, to determine whether something is good or bad. And so in that sense, to judge would be considered a positive thing. So sometimes the Bible uses the word judge to say uh, something positive. In fact, Psalm 119 goes, uh, the psalmist is, is asking God for knowledge and good judgment. Meaning he, he's asking God for wisdom and discernment to make good decisions. So that's on one end of the lexical spectrum of the word judge. Now, is that what Jesus is talking about here? Do not judge. Do not make an evaluation. Do not be discerning. Not to ever ever make a discernment about somebody's character. Not to ever confront a friend when they're doing something that's harmful to themselves or to others. Is that what he's talking about? Obviously, he's not. In fact, the rest of the passage makes that pretty clear. Probably this is what Jesus is saying in verse 6, while he, why he kind of adds on this whole thing about dogs and pigs and that sort of thing. It's most likely what he's saying there. He's saying, no, I do want you to be discerning. Some people are like dogs and some are like pigs. And you need to be careful, wise, discerning when it comes to the way you interact with others. That's probably what he's saying. He's saying, so it's, it's not so much that we're not supposed to uh, make any judgments, but he must be talking about something else. In fact, this week at my church, we had this messy situation. We found out that a guy who's been hanging around us for the last couple months uh, is actually a registered predatory sex offender. Okay? And he's been coming to one of our small groups and, and kind of getting involved. And uh, I come to find out that his last victim was an eight-year-old little girl at a church. Okay. So messy, difficult situation to deal with. And um, let's say that this guy wanted to volunteer to serve in the children's ministry. 
Is that a good idea? It's probably not. And so what we're going to need to do in that case is exercise good judgment. We're going to need to be wise and discerning and say, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. And I think Jesus is okay with us judging him in that sense. Would you agree? Probably all right. So that's not what he's talking about. On the other end of the lexical spectrum in the Bible, the word judge is used to refer to a specific event, and that is the last day, the day of judgment, the day when God will come to the earth to judge the world. And on that day, God's judgment will be one of condemnation, one of punishment, one of exclusion, one where he rids the earth of all evildoers. And most scholars believe that's actually the way Jesus is using the word judge. That's what he's referring to. If you look at the second part of the verse, or you too will be judged, he's probably not just talking about other people are going to judge you, but he's probably talking about you becoming subject to God's great final judgment. So if that's the way Jesus is using the word judge in the second part of the verse, then it's also probably the way he's using it in the first part. Do not judge in the sense of trying to play God's role in someone else's life. Do not judge in a way that, uh, do, not, do not confront others or speak critically to others for the purpose of hurting them or to punish them or to alienate them. Do not judge others in a way that's designed to make you look good and make someone else look bad. Don't judge to get even. Don't judge others in a way that destroys relationship rather than maintains and strengthens them. So I think you could sum up what Jesus is saying here by saying that we should use judgment, but that we shouldn't be judgmental. Big difference, right? Now, apparently, this was a problem for Christ followers back then. Now, I know this is hard to believe, so you use your imagination there was a time when Christians had a reputation for being judgmental. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But thankfully, we've evolved, and that's no longer the case, right? No, actually, I recently read a study in the book Unchristian that surveys 18 to 30-year-olds across our country, and what they report is that 9 out of 10 young people in our country would use the word judgmental to describe Christianity. Now, that's not a new idea, but somebody's actually quantified it. And our reputation, then, is that we are seen as prideful and we're quick to point out the faults in other people without taking the time to get to know them. So how do we respond to that? What are we to say when Jesus clearly teaches his disciples not to be judgmental and 90% of the young people in our country say Christians are judgmental. How are we going to respond to that? Well, on one hand, I would say we could get defensive and argumentative, and I, I could say, well, our culture has gotten so relativistic and soft that you can't say anything critical about anyone or else you're accused of hate speech. Now, there may be some validity to that argument, but here's the thing. If that's the only way we respond to this accusation that we are judgmental, then I think we put ourselves in great danger of doing the exact same thing Jesus is telling us not to do here. 
by turning our fingers outward and pointing at the sins of those around us rather than taking a good long look at ourselves. And so let's just assume for a moment that 90% of 18 to 30-year-olds in our country are onto something. And that there, this is a teaching of Jesus that we collectively, as the American evangelical church, have failed to live out. We have failed to form communities that practice what Jesus preaches here. Now, I don't know you guys that well. I, I don't... I, I haven't been here with you before, so this isn't like, you know, something that I feel like, you know, Antioch really needs to hear. That's not the case. It's more going, I think we all need to hear it. This is part of our shared reputation. And so, after all, the complaint that the culture files against us isn't that we're being too, isn't that we're not being, isn't that we're being too Christian, right? People aren't complaining that we're being too Christian. They're complaining that we're not being Christian enough. And if that's the case, we should probably pay attention to that. So the truth is, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but I've heard it my whole life. Christians always talk about how we should hate the sin, but love the sinner, right? And I think what's happened is the way we go about doing that looks more like hating the sin and hating the sinner. So how can we avoid being judgmental Christians? And instead, how can we learn to use judgment in a way that actually helps others rather than hurts them? And what does that actually look like in relationships? So that's, that's the metaphor that Jesus dives into next. What does this actually look like? Well, this whole thing then in uh, verses 3 through 5, this familiar uh, picture of the, the plank and the speck and all this kind of stuff. Um, I'd like to ask this question. What is the main characteristic that Jesus is trying to impart to his disciples in this story? What is the main characteristic? So you could argue that it's humility. You could say that it's mercy. You could say that it's kindness. And there's Parts of all of those that I uh, think get close, but none of them really capture it. In verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your eye? He calls them out for not paying attention to the planks in their eyes, but rather being blind to their own shortcomings. So here's what I would argue. The main characteristic that Jesus is trying to impart to his disciples is self-awareness. He's calling his disciples to live a life of self-awareness. I know that's maybe a loaded term. So if you've studied a lot of psychology or philosophy, don't read too much into it. But self-awareness simply means being able to see the truth about yourself and be honest about it. Jesus is calling his disciples to pay attention to their own hearts and to their own lives. It seems that that's incredibly important to Jesus, that we would be self-aware. So I would sum it up by saying Jesus asks his disciples to assume 
that there are things about our hearts and about our lives that we can't see that need to be removed. And we need someone else to help us see those things and remove them. So he doesn't set this up like it's a rare thing. Like every once in a while, somebody is going to be blind to one, a sin in their own life. He sets it up like we should be assuming that this is what's going on in us. He asks us to assume that there are things in our lives, sins in our soul, that we can't see. Have you ever been in a situation where um, you wish that somebody would have told you what everybody else sees, but that you were blind to? Like maybe you had spinach stuck in your teeth or mustard on your chin, and you don't know how long it was there, and nobody ever mentioned it. Maybe your fly was down. I don't know. Again, <laughs> a few years ago, my wife Jen was in a conversation with somebody, another woman, and they were talking for a while, and while they were talking, Jen was chewing on a pen, and when the conversation ended, she walked past the mirror, looked in the mirror, and noticed she has blue ink all over her mouth. She had no idea that the pen had broken apart and was leaking all over. And this other woman she's talking to is too chicken to say anything about it, right? And so she's not sure how long it's been that way, but nobody said anything. And it sure would have been nice <laughs> if that person would have been courageous enough, even though it's a little awkward, to say, did you know there's ink all over your face? <laughs> that would have been nice. So by the way, in that situation, if somebody's got something in their teeth or on their face, what do you do? You tell them. You always tell them, right? Unless you hate them. <laughs> in which case, you need this passage more than anybody. So uh, you always tell them. And so Jen, I mean, my wife's a beautiful, respectable, competent woman, and sometimes she has ink on her face. <laughs> sometimes there's things that she can't see in her own, in her own reflection that the other people, everybody else around her, can see. And so that's what Jesus is, is saying. It's the same way with our souls, same way with our lives, same way with our spiritual condition. He says, I want you to always assume that there are things in your life that need to be removed, but you are totally blind to them. And that you need others to come along and to help you see those things and remove them. So Jesus is trying to impart self-awareness, a continual pursuit as a way of life that we are constantly seeking to gain knowledge and understanding and awareness of our own heart and soul and life. I would argue that's what Jesus is teaching here. And so how do we go about that? Well, there's a few different things that that might, might look like. In Psalm 139, there's this beautiful prayer of a man who's on a quest for self-awareness. And first and foremost, he turns to God. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, God, I know that there's things in my life that need to be removed that I'm blind to. And so he comes before God in prayer, in reflection, and he says, God, show me what I can't see. 
So self-awareness, you could sum it up by saying it simply means to know the truth about yourself. And what is truth? Well, God is truth. And so self-aware really means coming to see ourselves the way God sees us. Good and bad, right? If you were able to come to a place where you are seeing yourself in the way God sees you, that is what Jesus is saying. I want you to be self-aware people. And so just in terms of application or what does this actually look like, it seems that it would be essential for Christ's disciples to develop some sort of rhythm where we are bringing ourselves before God and praying a prayer similar to Psalm 139. Search me, O God. See if there's anything in there that I don't know about, that I'm unaware of. I want to see what you see. And I would encourage you that if you're serious about growing in this, to find some sort of rhythm, some sort of time or place or ritual where you do this on a regular basis. It doesn't have to be every day, but, but maybe it should be. Just sitting down and inviting God to help you see and remove the things that are stuck in your eye. And if we do that, if you guys, as the Antioch community, can do that, each one taking responsibility for paying attention to your own life, then I think what Jesus is saying here is that we're going to become a community that's less likely to be judgmental. See, self-awareness doesn't allow me to be judgmental of others. Because when I look at others and I see sin in their life, in that moment, I'm simply seeing me. I'm seeing another sinful, broken, struggling person. And even if my sin is different than their sin, if their sin deserves condemnation, then so does mine. And so I am going to be unable to be judgmental if I'm viewing myself the way God views me. So the truth is that, uh, well, Tony Campolo said it this way, we are used to hearing that we should love the sinner and hate their sin. But that's the exact opposite of what Jesus commands here. He says that we should love the sinner and hate our own sin. Okay, so that's the first thing. Jesus is saying, my disciples need to be growing in self-awareness. But what then? Is that enough simply to know of our sin or maybe even to despise our sin? Is that where this story stops? It's not. And in fact, it could be possible to stop there and use this as an opportunity to never get involved in anyone else's lives. Use this as an excuse and just go, hey, you know, I know they're messing up and they probably need somebody to talk to them about it, but, man, I'm no better than they are. I'm a mess too, and I've, I'm not perfect, so I'm not going to speak hard words to them. In a culture of apathy, that's what tends to happen, right? And Jesus is, is not letting it stop there. It's not enough just to acknowledge that we're sinful people, but he says what you need 
is somebody to help you remove that stuff from your eye. It's not good enough just to know that it's there. You need someone to help you get it out of your eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly and help your brothers and sisters remove the stuff from their eyes. So there's a story in the book of 2 Samuel that actually plays this out perfectly. You can turn there with me if you'd like, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's this well-known story of David, the great king of Israel. And while his armies are off at battle, he uh, has an affair with one of his soldiers' wives. And she gets pregnant. And so David tries to cover it up, but it doesn't work. So uh, what he does is has this, this soldier essentially put to death on the battlefield. And then he comes in like a hero and marries the widow, takes her into his palace, and she gives birth to his son. And, and chapter 11 of 2 Samuel ends by saying, um, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Feels like a little bit of an understatement, right? So apparently, David's got this plank in his eye. And he's unaware of it, or at least maybe he must be unaware of how bad it really is. And uh, then, in 2 Samuel 12, this guy Nathan comes along, comes to David and tells him this story. Read with me the first uh, few verses of, of 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So Nathan lays out this story. And how does David respond? Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Okay? So Nathan's helping David to see just how severe, just how messed up, just how big this plank is that's in his eye. And David's freaking out at this point, saying, God, that is, that's horrible. And then look at verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Not like you the man, right? (laughs) You are that man. You're this great king who has everything, anything you want. But you took the wife of this soldier, and it was all he had, and then you took his life. And so Nathan is coming along and skillfully, gently opening King David's eye to his own sin. And how does David respond? Skip down to verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
His eyes are open. He sees his sin. He hates his sin. And he begins to repent of his sin. Then Nathan does something really beautiful that shows that he is judging in the way Jesus asks us to rather than in the way Jesus commands us not to. He shows us that he is having this whole difficult conversation with David, not as a power play, not to destroy the guy, not to tear him down, but he's actually entering into this difficult conversation for David's own good, to help him, to build him up, to restore him. And look, look in verse thir- the second half of verse 13. Nathan replied, after, Na- after David says, I've sinned against the Lord, Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Just beautiful. The delicacy, the balance. On one hand, he's confronting the king over this horrible, wicked sin. And on the other hand, he's imparting hope and mercy and forgiveness. So he's reminding David that your sin is great, but God's mercy is greater. Do you see how that's the big picture of trying to help somebody grow in self-awareness, trying to help them see themselves the way God sees them? Yes, we're broken and sinful and rebellious way more than we could ever believe, but we are also loved and accepted way more than we could ever hope for. And I think that captures really well the kinds of relationships, the kinds of conversations that Jesus is hoping his community is going to be known for. And so back to Matthew 7, this metaphor of having somebody help you remove something from your eye being like having somebody help you remove sin from your life, it's a brilliant metaphor that Jesus uses here. Think about what's required if somebody's going to help you get something out of your eye. What would, what would need to be in place? Well, first of all, they would need to be close to you, right? That's not something you can do from across the room. That's something that only happens when you allow somebody to be close to you. So close they could touch you, so close they could hurt you. Secondly, they need to be incredibly careful because if they are clumsy and careless in removing something from your eye, really easily they can do way more damage than good. So he's saying this is something that needs to be done with great care, great caution. As my disciples are entering into these kinds of relationships with each other, This is something that has to be done with great intentionality and precision. Because if you do it wrong, you can blind somebody forever. And I also say that if I'm going to allow somebody to remove something from my eye, it works a lot better if I'm willing to trust them. It's going to be really hard for you to get something out of my eye if I'm not going to let you try. I can easily flinch, back away, run away. But if this is actually going to work, I would need to be willing to trust you. 
and probably even need to ask you, give you permission at least, to do that for me. And if you just go around with tweezers trying to grab things out of people's eyes, it's not going to go well for anybody, right? That's not the kind of church Jesus is envisioning here. So the question I would then just turn to you guys is who in your life have you given this kind of permission to? Who in your life have you decided to make yourself vulnerable with? Who in your life has the freedom to know that if they want to point out something in your heart or your life that's broken and needs to be removed, do they know that that's going to be welcome? And so for me, this primarily looks like the elder team at my church. A group of five guys that are shepherding the flock and sharing life deeply together. And one of the things we do on a regular basis is create space to help each other remove stuff from our eyes. And it simply looks like this. We, we set a, a date in advance knowing that in a week or two we're going to have this conversation. And we're going to give each other permission to confront us about anything they see in our life that needs to be addressed. Now, what's beautiful about doing that intentionally is that if you don't do it intentionally and carefully, it's going to happen unintentionally and really messy, right? And that's when things just get really, really ugly. But when you're able to go to a trusted brother or sister in Christ and just say, I'm giving you full permission, anything you see in my life, anything in my eye that I'm blind to, I want you to help me see it and help me remove it incredible, incredible potential for transformation, for sanctification, for maturity, for self-awareness. And Jesus is saying, that's the kind of community my disciples should be known for. For using good judgment, not for being judgmental. For being discerning and wise and self-aware. Not for being hypocritical and looking down at others and gossiping and judging and and all that stuff. He's saying, that's the life that I'm calling you to. And I would argue that if we can become a community like this, following Jesus and relating to to one another in this countercultural and counterintuitive way, then we have the potential to become the very thing that Jesus says in this sermon we are to be, and that is the light of the world. And so we need times of prayer, self-reflection, confession and repentance before God. We need relationships with people that we're willing to trust our eyesight to. But more than anything, if we're going to grow in the grace required to live in obedience to Jesus' teaching, we need the gospel. So we gather together every Sunday to worship the only one who actually has the right to judge us. 
but instead he was judged for us. Jesus is the only human who could his entire life see clearly enough and could rightly pronounce judgment on sinners. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says that he came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. And so he does confront our sin and our hypocrisy and our idolatry. He does pull the planks out of our eyes. And then he gets nailed to them. He takes our sin upon himself. And so... My question, my invitation, my challenge for you, my brothers and sisters of Antioch today, is will you come honestly before God? The world desperately, desperately needs God's people to be their light. They desperately need us to be growing in self-awareness paying attention, watching our own hearts and lives closely. And then, receiving God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and turning and extending that same grace and mercy to others. See, what the Bible teaches is that we aren't saved by our, by our morality. We are saved by God's mercy. So what I would argue, Christians should be known more for being merciful than being moral. And it hasn't been the case. We never had a merciful majority. But if you see the gospel... If you believe it, it confronts your sin, brings you to repentance, but at the same time, raises you up. It humbles you and it exalts you at the same time. That's where he calls us to be. It's, it's just like if you were to give me a gift of a book called How to Lose 50 Pounds. And I go... Thank you. <laughs> kind of hurts my feelings, <laughs> but at the same time, that's, that's helpful. That's, that's hopeful. The gospel says this, you're worse than you can imagine, and you're more loved than you can ever hope. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that you are actively fathering us. You are helping us to overcome our weaknesses, our failures, our sin, our immaturity, our rebellion, and our ignorance. And God, those, though those things are greater in our life than we could ever know, you know that. And you have loved us and given yourself to us anyways. And so I would just pray over this congregation 
God, would you pour out your mercy and grace upon them? Would you allow them to be recipients of those things, but also to extend them to one another and to the world around them? Would you give them the diligence and the discipline to spend time regularly paying attention to their own lives before you? Would you give them the courage and the humility to have these kinds of relationships and these kinds of conversations within this body? And God, would your spirit be working deeply within this church to form the image and likeness of Jesus even stronger and even brighter. That when the city of Bend looks upon Antioch, they would see a glowing, vibrant, radiant reflection of your goodness and your grace and your glory. So we thank you, Lord. And we trust you with our lives. In Jesus' name.